Good things for God's people. It's good to be zealous. That means filled with passionate eagerness, earnest enthusiasm, full of excitement about something or someone. It doesn't just mean jumping up and down and getting excited. It means an exuberance based upon a commitment of enthusiasm to something or someone. And the Bible tells us that it's good to be zealous. And we've talked about zealous in our hatred of sin, zealous to repent of our past sins, be zealous to hear and obey spiritual counsel completely. You know, time and time again I say, trust spiritual leadership. You come for leaders, come for counsel, and you've given you the word, pray about it. Go home and search the scriptures, see if it's so, and stand it. God will honor you for it. And you know, when I say that, immediately I know that there's a tendency on some people's part to say, well, that's self-serving. No. If you as a wife will submit yourself to the authority of your husband, God will honor you for it. If your children will submit themselves to their parents because it's spiritual authority, God will honor them for it. God does it all with Now, what does he say to us? That we should submit ourselves to those that have authority even in the government. Why? God says, I'll bless you for it. I'm talking about any kind of authority that comes to you, you will submit to authority, God-given authority. How many of you know the policemen on the road are God-given authority? How many of you wives know that if you honor your husband, even when you don't agree with him, you honor him, and God will protect you? So this is, And the scripture says we're to be zealous about this. I mean, God, how can I show submissiveness to spiritual authority? See, some people think the minute I say spiritual authority, they think, oh, the preacher just wants everybody to submit to it. Now, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual authority. Children, obey your parents. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. Right, right on down the line. Everybody, submit to those in, in spiritual authority over you. Those that must answer for your soul. Submit to those that are in the government. You see, the same word that is used for those that help the pastor in the church called deacons, that do lost servants, is the same word that's used for those that are working in the government. Deacons. Servants. And they're placed there by God. It's nice to get excited about some things, but not too many people want to get excited about hearing and obeying spiritual counsel. Then we talked about having a zeal to pray for others. That's what we talked about the last time. We need to be zealous to be an example unto others. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 1 and 2. For as touching the ministering to the saints, they were, we were talking about offering, collecting offerings for needy saints in other places, not the tithe, now offerings above and beyond the tithe. For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind. The Living Bible says, For I know how eager you are to do it. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, and that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your what? Your zeal hath provoked very many. Your enthusiasm has stirred up many of them to begin helping others also. You know, a lot of times God will just use a certain individual in a situation where there's a need to, to break down the wall and break down the barrier so that people will begin to give to the need that God has. 
I heard of it years ago when a, a church needed to raise some money for a missionary, and they were asking, how, and of course they would give bids, as how many, I mean pledges, how much they would play. And they'd hand them all in, they'd come up the platform, and they'd say $100, $50, $10, and they weren't getting where they had to get. And finally, one elderly gentleman in the church stood up, and he called out a number of several thousand dollars. And the pastor said, wait a minute, you can't afford, you don't have that much money. They were, very, they were on retirement on Social Security. He, my wife and I have talked about it. We know that it's in this mission field is needed to work in this mission field. No missionaries are there, and these people have got to hear the gospel. My wife and I are going to sell our house so they can go to the mission field. So they can get this, this mission field open up. And about the, the place just became absolutely silent. He said, and then finally a banker stood up and said, no, sir, you're not going to do that. And then a businessman stood up and says, no, sir, you're not going to do that. And they said, the pastor said, what do you mean? They said, you keep your house. God spoke into our hearts. We'll more than supply what you're going to give with your house. He said, I'm ashamed that someone like this has to stand up and offer the only thing they have on earth to support the ministry of the mission. The zeal that this couple had was infectious. And Paul says, you Corinthians, your zeal has literally caused many others around you to get excited about the things of God. Do you and I realize that whatever attitude we have when we're in this fellowship, it radiates and it's contagious to others? If you and I come in looking like we've been sucking on alum all day, it'll affect others around us. If you look like you're born in the objective case and every time your head itches, you scratch your foot, it, 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 it spreads. If you complain and if you criticize, if you put down and you argue, you're argumentative, that spreads everywhere. Whereby if you come in with just the joy and the zeal of God, what can be done? Bless God, if I can't do it, I'll find somebody that can. That kind of attitude, that becomes contagious and things begin to happen. Paul says, hey, your zeal has done it. Let me ask you, how many people do you know in the fellowship here that if somebody asked you, they'd say, uh, if they'd say, what, what about that person? You'd say, they're zealous for the Lord. They're zealous for the things of God. They're zealous for the work of the ministry. You see, no, names will come into your mind. People will come into your mind when I say that. And then if I ask you, how many do you, when you think of them, you don't think of them as being zealous. Oh, they're there. I mean, their body's there. If I feel the body, it's warm. But I mean, they warm a pew. They come in and they go out. And they come in and not excited, not down, or else they're way up there and then they're way down there. I mean, you never know where they're going to be. You have to say, where'd they go this time, you know, when you see them. Whatever we are, it becomes infectious. Paul says, because of your zeal, others now, other churches are beginning to get excited about the thing. Paul says you're examples by your zeal. Now, see, God uses examples. How many of you know God uses examples when he's talking to others? You want to see a good example of that? Look back in Ezekiel, the 14th chapter, verse 20. God was talking about judgments. He's going to have Jerusalem destroyed. What would it take for God not to destroy Jerusalem? Let me just go back to verse 19. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, but they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. He said, if those three guys lived in that town, that town has been so miserable, I would still destroy it. I'd deliver them from it. You notice every time God says he's going to do divine judgment, the saints are going to be taken out first. 
He's not, I, by their righteousness, they'd be saved. I'd get them out of the city like I did Lot. I'd get him out of the city, see. Like Noah, I prepared an ark and let him get in the ark when the divine judgment came on the earth. He's I'm going to get him out of there. But he said, in that situation, in that city, if these three guys lived there, I'd have their houses put up on trucks and hauled out of the city before I destroyed the city. But that city has been so wicked that I'm going to destroy it. Think of Noah. God destroyed the whole earth to save Noah. Think of Daniel. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. God rescued him. He came back out and all of them that were responsible for him going in were thrown in. God says, I'm using them as examples. When you live righteously before me, I will protect you. And I'll make you to be a witness to others. Now, he says, there's going to be people around, though, that no matter who lives around them, they're not going to change. Now, if you and I haven't learned something, I mean, if you haven't learned something down through the years of your life, I'll tell you this right now. There are going to be some people that you and I will never be able to help. Even if Noah and Daniel and Job lived there, you still can't be saved. Thank God, God still says, I want examples that I can give to other people to know if you'd be like them, things would be different. Suppose God would use you and me as an example of those that are zealous for him. It's good for God's people to be zealous. I mean, God is, makes God sick to see us neither hot nor cold, and if we're lukewarm, he says, that makes me sick to my stomach. Get excited. When God talks about examples, it seems like he always uses individuals, very seldom does he use a crowd. If you'll read this Bible, you'll find in almost every instance the crowd was wrong. And I didn't think about this till the other day. He said, if you'll go through the Bible, you'll find in almost every instance the true prophets of God were always unpopular and the false prophets were always popular. When you think about that, I thought, boy, that's true. All prophets come in and say, oh, God's going to bless you and this is going to happen and no destruction coming and nothing but blessings and riches. The other prophet goes, uh-huh, okay, that's what you think. And they say, well, let me tell you what God said. God says you're going to go out there and he's going to, you're going to get your tail whipped and you're going to get killed and you're going to be driven right into the ground and blah, 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 blah. You rotten, get out of here, you know. You don't like to hear my message, huh? They would even come around and taunt the prophets. What's the word from God today, preacher? That's what they said. God said, if you don't quit saying that, he said, you're in trouble. Don't you come around and say what the word of God is because you don't listen to the word of God when it does come to you. A lot of people today say, what's God saying? And I, there are times when I just feel like saying, you wouldn't want to know. But God says, will you be zealous for me? But it's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. To stand up and declare the goodness of God in the congregation of the Ephraim. You know, sometimes you may say, well, God's been good. I can't think of any. You know, he didn't give me a new car this week, but... Uh, uh, you know, I, it got, it's got to be something exciting. But how about, you know, I am just so grateful that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I get it in the morning, and I have that confident assurance that he said he'll never leave me to forsake I give him thanks. He's my Jehovah Rapha. He's my healer. Lord, you are my peace. Lord, you are. Begin to just praise the Lord that way. Or even be able to get up and say, will you please pray for me? I'm having this struggle, either in my thought life or with my attitude. And Would you just pray for me? I really need to. And then all of a sudden... The Spirit of God begins to rise up in that situation and, and it just spreads. Every revival that I have heard about or been involved in, it starts with somebody breaking down before God and saying, pray for me, I, really, I have sinned against God, blah, 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 and tears begin to flow and all of a sudden the Spirit of God just covers the whole place. I don't care what it is, whatever relationship we have with one another, it should be zealous for the things of God so we influence others to be zealous also. I want to tell you something. In every way, spiritually, mentally, physically, financially, it pays to serve Jesus. 
Brother Webb, you don't know what I'm going through. This doesn't make any difference. If you think you're having a tough, you ought to see the way of the transgressor. He said, well, I know this unsaved guy. He's got everything. Oh, but wait till his foot slips. He ain't got nothing. In the meantime, as we, we return thanks and praise to the Lord all the time, we are storing up riches for us when we get, we get to heaven. You know, if we don't have anything on this earth, we're still rich because we have the Lord. So if he blesses us with the responsibility of blessing others, you know, I don't know about you, but when I think of the possibility of God ever blessing us in a material way, inside I just say, God, I've got to have wisdom if that ever happens. I've got to have wisdom and understand. You've got to give me discernment. I mean, I, this is a tremendous responsibility if it ever comes. You ever thought about that? You know, it's a lot easier to figure out how am I going to pay this bill this month rather than how am I going to take care of all this money? How many of you had that problem? It doesn't make any difference. Whatever, I'm, whatever we do, we're to do it as under the Lord. Be zealous about it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. Even so ye, Paul says, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Now remember I told you 1 Corinthians 14, 1 and 1 Corinthians 12, 1 tell us that we are to earnestly desire spiritual. 1 Corinthians 14th chapter, one of the last verses in that chapter says, the next last verse, Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Nowhere does Paul say that we should not want to have the gifts of the Spirit operating in our life. But here in verse 12, he says we need to be zealous. What does that mean? It means excited. It means really anticipating that God is going to cause them to operate in our lives and they're going to function in our lives and we're going to see fruit from it. We're going to see signs and wonders following and I want you to know that this isn't some writing of some other person. God spoke this by the Holy Spirit to Paul. And he said that even so you, talking to Christians, certainly he was writing to the church of Corinth, but inasmuch as he was writing it to them, and they were saints, we're saints too, it applies today. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts. He said you are zealous of gifts. In fact, you remember back in the first and second chapter, he says you excel in the gifts. I mean, uh, that's one thing I can't criticize you about. You are right up to the very front lines on the gifts. I don't know if I can find it right quickly there, but that's one of the things he emphasized about the church. Yes, verse 7 of chapter 1. And so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you're right up there in the gifts. And he says here, even so ye, forasmuch as you are already zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that they may excel, that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Don't just seek gifts for yourself, but seek that they'll minister to the body of Christ. Uh, if you and I don't hunger for those things, we'll not see it. I, I appreciate what I believe is A.W. Tozer said one time. No, excuse me, it was Spurgeon, I believe. He said, if you and I don't agonize for souls to be saved, we'll not see souls saved. If you and I don't agonize to see souls saved, we will not see souls saved. God is looking for someone whose heart can be broken over lost souls before they're going to get saved. I want to tell you, if you don't agonize over the desire to want to operate in the gifts of the Spirit, you and I will not operate in the gifts of the Spirit. We will not function in our life. It's only when we hunger and thirst after right things, righteousness, that we'll be filled.
God does not go around to the bucket and try to throw it over the top of our heads indiscriminately. He's looking for someone to say, Lord, I want it. Lord, I long for it. Lord, I want to be everything you want me to be. He says, if you'll get in that attitude and say, Lord, I'm not going to stop asking until I get it. Jacob says, I'll not let you go till you bless me. That's why Jacob got the blessing that he got. The Lord says here now, don't just be zealous, but be so zealous that you're not going to be satisfied until you're getting the gifts of the Spirit operating in your life to the where they bless the body. How many people do you know that are in that attitude right now? Lord, I don't care what it costs. I want to have the gifts of the Spirit operating in my life. I want to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. I want to be, have the, the dunamis of God flowing through my life. Lord, I'm not going to be satisfied until I see that happening in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, Lord, let it be. You ever run into a bunch of those people every week? Most people say, oh boy, I'm good church and tonight I am so busy and I'm so shot and I'm so tired. Well, I don't want the preacher to get discouraged, so we better go. See, they don't realize. That's like an automobile saying, well, it's almost on empty, so I guess I've got to go and get some more gas. They don't realize without it, it wouldn't go anywhere. Without fellowship, God's word says you and I are not going to get anywhere. We're not going to go anywhere. And not only should we have fellowship, but if you and I are all week long saying, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, let the baptism of the Holy Spirit make its manifestation of the manifestation gifts out through my life. So that when I go to fellowship tonight, you will begin to speak through me and I'll minister to someone in the body that's come there really tired this week, really having a need in their life. And they'll, you'll have a word from, from you to, through me to them. Can you imagine what it would be like if we got this zeal in our hearts for the gifts of the Spirit? For when we walk in, God would begin to lay on our hearts different ones and their needs and show us what those needs are. We could go over and pray for them. What would happen in this church? I want to tell you something. The reason we're not seeing it, I really believe, is because we're not hungry. hungry if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shall be fed. You say, well, Pastor, you just don't know what my background is. You know where I come from. I couldn't care less who you come from. You couldn't come from much worse than what I came from. But God doesn't look where you come from. He's looking to see where you're going. And he says, he that is forgiven much, loveth much. And if you love him much, you'll give everything to him. And you say, Lord, you said you'd take the foolishness of this world to confound the wise. I don't want you to confound the wise because nothing's any more foolish than me. I'm going to tell you again, if you're not hungry for it, it won't happen. And I've had many, many people say to me, oh, I'm not interested in all that. I just know the Lord and those things don't interest me at all. They'll never be touched by it. What a tragedy it was. I heard a great man of God that I used to minister with years ago lying on his deathbed, and he took my hand. He said, Brother Joe, is it possible that I missed one of the greatest blessings that life had to offer to a Christian because I never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I thought, here's a man that literally was responsible for winning millions to Jesus Christ. And on his deathbed, he said, did I miss it? And I thought, I wonder how many there are that have had the baptism of the Holy Spirit going around that aren't winning very many to Christ anywhere at any time. But here was a man never had it, but winning millions to Christ. He said, did I miss it? We've talked about the right kind of zeal. But I want you to know there's also a zeal in this world that's not according to knowledge, the Word of God says. Look at Romans, the 10th chapter again. Go back to Romans. Chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Paul's talking about Israel. We go back to verse 1, actually read verses 1, 2, and 3. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God, my heart's desire and prayer to God. See, Paul had great desires in his heart and then expected God to do them, fulfill them. For Israel is that they might be saved. Paul is saying here, Israel is lost. But I'm praying that God will save them. How many of you know that God's going to answer his prayer in the days ahead? Israel is going to be saved in the last day. For I bear them record that they have a, what? Zeal of God. Now, he's not talking about God's zeal. He's talking about a zeal for the things, for religious things, really. Things that they called God. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Otherwise, no one has misdirected zeal. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. He says they're over here trying their best to climb the ladder to get to heaven in their ignorance. They're as zealous as they can possibly be. They'll do anything. Just show me what to do to get to heaven. I'll do it. He says, that's religiosity. You can't get to heaven. See, religion is man trying to get to heaven, to God, and Christianity is God coming down to earth to man. He says they have a zeal, not according to knowledge. I want you to see a couple few examples of Paul explaining this zeal, not according to knowledge. Look at Philippians, the third chapter with me. Verses 4 through 6. Paul says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But the things which were gained to me, those I counted for loss, uh, counted loss for Christ. He said, I had great zeal and that zeal was misdirected persecuting the church, actually hauling people into prison and having them killed. Look at Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, I am verily a man which am as Jew, born in Tarsus, the city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day, He's speaking to the Jews now. He says, you're all zealous toward God. And I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women, as also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders, from whom I also received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound into Jerusalem for to be punished. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Paul says, I had great zeal toward the things of God where I was really going out to get the Christian. Now turn over to Galatians, the first chapter, verses 13 and 14. For ye have heard of my con conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in mine own nation, more, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. More exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. He was a very religious person. As I thought about what Paul said here, that there's a zeal not according to knowledge, I was reminded of some of the articles that I have been reading lately. And I want you to see that we're seeing this happening more and more in the days ahead zeal, zealous people, but not according to knowledge. And I mean, these people are very sincere. 
They want to see their faith or their way work out. I read this out of the Omega letter in concerning Shirley MacLaine. It said, Shirley MacLaine tried the spiritual approach to a power blackout in a Dallas hotel where she was conducting a seminar, but it didn't work. The metaphysical MacLaine was leading 1,000 people Saturday at a seminar titled Connecting with the Higher Self. When a 12-inch water line burst near the hotel and flooded a power station, the hotel was blacked out and candles were rushed to the guests. McLean asked her disciples to sit cross-legged on the red carpeted floor and meditate spiritually to repair the broken water main. Imagine now, she said, the water slowing down. Now picture the workmen finding the broken pipe and securing them together. Maybe this power outage is to show you that you can have your own grand silence without the sound effects. The seven-hour seminar concluded several minutes later, still in the dark. She sincerely believed that if she could just think it, it would take place. Zeal without knowledge. I want to just read several articles here that were very interesting to me concerning the, the things that are happening today and how far they are from the truth. According to the New Age teachings, the earth is a living, breathing organism, and much like the world's convergence organizers believed that the earth, as a result of all the negativity on the planet, was about to become phys psychically imbalanced, and therefore we would not be able to join the Galactic Federation of Planets in the year 2012. I didn't realize we were in such danger, did you? We're not going to enter into that galactic fellowship or federation. The belief that the earth is alive is central to the holistic environment of environmentalist and interconnectedness teaching of the New Age. However, as is already evident, these far-fetched teachings are beginning to lay the groundwork for a return to the age-old teaching of worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, and Mother Nature. Unfortunately, such teachings are also beginning to come forth in the ecumenical churches. There have actually been bishops who have recently said it's more important that you understand that we must protect the earth than to, than to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. As Dave Hunt points out in the Cult Explosion, EST, founded by Werner Earhart in a combination of psychology, Scientology, Zen Buddhism, yoga, silver mind control, and other occult teachings, techniques, the goal of EST is to bring trainees to a point of enlightenment where one suddenly realizes that the God of the Bible is a lie and that the self is in fact the only God there is, totally responsible for its own life experiences and circumstances and the creator of its, its own universe, However, Earhart has now replaced EST with a new name, Transformational Technologies. Transformational Technologies. Remember those words because you're going to hear them. And is now peddling it to the nations and corporations instead of individuals. Once again, we find the major publication, the Wall Street Journal, giving front page coverage to the rising prominence of a yet another New Age technique called Transformational Technology. Major corporations today are requiring their workers to go in for these mind control and mind training and relaxation seminars. They've only recently been able to take them to court and they're starting to say that they don't have to go. They have to make other provisions for those who do not believe in this to be able to go be able to do something else during the same time. It's good for God's people to uphold biblical standards when relating to other people. It's good for God's people to uphold biblical standards when relating to others. 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter.
Let me just read the first 16 verses here. Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is what? That is good and acceptable before God. Again, the scripture says, now here's something that's good and acceptable before God. Let's go on. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God and continueth in supplication and prayers night and day, but she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported for, of, for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have received the, relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse. But when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And withal, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. Let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. And then, of course, it goes on and says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, let's just go back and, and pick out a few separate single words here. In the first uh, verse, it says, Rebuke not an elder, and, and the, uh, the Greek implies they're not, uh, even though the word is presbytos, He's not talking about necessarily an officer in the church, an elder, an officer in the church. It's more the, the men who, and the reason I say this is because it, later on he talks about the younger men. He's talking about men of more age, the older men in the church. He says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. Now, let me just first of all tell you that it used to be, that's all you used to have to say when you read this. Well, the problem, when I was in school, when they said treat him as a father, I understood how you're supposed to treat a father. But nowadays, you almost have to go back and say, let me explain, like Jody used to say when she was little, let me explain to you. I've got to explain nowadays what it means when it says, how as you treat a father. Exodus, the 20th chapter, the 12th verse says, honor your father and your mother. In the New Testament, it says, children, obey your father and mother, for this is right. The commandment of the Lord is to honor your father and mother. And we're living in a day and age now when it's very difficult, first of all, for children to have respect for many fathers because what the fathers are doing today is just absolutely incredible. But likewise, it's very difficult when young people have been taught and are being encouraged in many of the educational schools throughout the United States today uh, to have rebellion in their hearts. They're actually teaching in some of the classes I'm, as I'm reading more and more periodicals on this. Now, this is what your folks have thought, but you have to understand you are an individual now and you have rights and you are allowed to have your own standards and your own ideas and your own principles and you must stand on those regardless of what else anyone might say to you, inferring even your parents. But I want you to know that God's Word, when it, anytime you want to read God's Word, if you and I are going to obey God's Word, we have to understand biblical principles. And the first one is that word 
honor in the Hebrew means to hold in a place of highest esteem. And may I just add to that, regardless of their conduct. It does not say in the commandment of God, honor your father and your mother if they do thus and such, or if they say such and thus and such, because they are in the position or the office of a father and mother, the word of God says we are commanded because of that position to honor them. Now, God put a little kicker in it in the Old Testament. I've told you this before. Anytime he gives a commandment, he usually puts a kicker behind it. You know what a kicker is? It's something that helps you, encourages you to do it. He says that if any child curses his mother or father or says something against them and embarrasses them publicly, they are to take a hold of him, the mother and father, and bring him out before the elders of the nation of Israel and stone him to death. Don't tell me that that wasn't a deterrent. When kids talked about getting stoned in that day, they weren't interested. I want to tell you something. God's nature has not changed one iota. The Lord is holy, he's righteous, and he's just. And it says in 1 John, if you say you love me and you won't keep my commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. And the commandment says, honor your father and your mother. So what is Paul saying to Timothy here? He's saying, I want you to teach this, that the older men in the church, regardless of their conduct, because of who they are and what they are, honor them. Hold them in a place of high respect. Yeah, but, I mean, they're over the hill and they're dumb. Anybody over 30, I can't really, you know, can't give a God. I've got news for you. The word of God says that the glory of the young man is his strength. The glory of the old man is his wisdom, his knowledge. You see, the trouble is, over in China, up until the communists came in, they always revered their ancestors. They went overboard. I mean, they would even go out and pour rice and food. They didn't want to eat on their graves. But they had a strong family tie. Japan had a strong family tie. Now, that family tie is beginning to break down in Japan, and they're having all kinds of sociological problems. I want to tell you again, any nation that gets away from God's principle of establishing a strong family is soon finished. It is the smallest unit that God has ever developed. Whatever way that unit goes, that's the way the nation goes. God's word says that young people are required. It's a commandment. Honor your parents. And he says now the, the way that you're to function in the church, the young people are to, with reverence and real high esteem, Toward the older people, never come against them harshly as a younger person. But entreat him as a father. In other words, with highest respect when you come to them. You approach them with respect. And the younger men as brethren. Now, you know something? We used to have guys in our neighborhood that had, I mean, families used to have two and three and four brothers in a family. And those brothers would fight every once in a while. But buddy, you better not pick on one of those brothers. Blood is thicker than water. Because about the time the two would be fighting and you'd step in and stand up for one of them, they'd both jump on you. And there's a principle here. He's saying that even the young men, we should treat one another like brothers. We might disagree once in a while, but you better not hurt my brother. This is my brother. I'm going to protect my brother. I'm going to do everything I can to establish my brother and let him know that there's a love relation here that's even closer than what we would know in a normal family. Or my sister. It goes on there. The elder women as mothers. Again, we have to go back to the fact that God says, honor your father and your mother. And most fathers and mothers in the past have always earned honor and respect. And there are many today that have done things, and caused things to happen to the children. I, I'm just absolutely horrified when I hear what happens in some of these homes where children are mistreated and locked in closets and everything else. And then 
you take them young people that have been beaten up by their drunken fathers or abandoned by their drunken mothers or drug mothers or whatever, uh, immoral mothers, and you say to them you're to treat them as your mothers, there's just a, a, a false picture that comes up. God established that the woman should be the caretaker of that family, that the husband is to protect her and hold her in high esteem. I want to tell you something right now. If you and I, as Christians, can't treat our other ladies in the church, the elderly, older ladies in the church, as mothers and the younger ones as our sisters, then we're disobeying God's orders in the Word. You know, I used to run around as a kid when I was a kid, and we ran in some pretty wild crowds. But if I thought anybody was trying to get fresh with my sisters, I would get upset with them. You better back off of my sister. I am not kidding you. Oh, but the rest of them, you know, fair game out here, but don't you come close to my sister. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's interesting how Paul says here, when you treat others in the church, you treat them like they're your sister. Well, you might have little disagreements once in a while, but you still love each other. And when the chips are down, you stand for each other and you hold each other in high regard and high respect. Uh, the Bible says that this is good. The elder women as mothers... Younger as sisters with all purity. I get all these Christian periodicals because they keep me up to date what's happening in the churches and in the different denominations and so forth and then as far as it goes around the world. And, and as I've seen this, the things that are happening within the churches, the standards in the churches, absolutely astounds me. When they take polls and asking young people in churches, is it right, all right to have premarital sex? Uh, is there anything wrong with having an occasional uh, extracurricular activity after you're married? I'm talking about, quote, Bible-believing churches now. In some cases, 50 to 60-some percent of the young people said there's nothing wrong with that. Now, something's happening. I mean, if that's happening now, what did Bill Gothard say? Whatever we do in moderation, the next generation will do to excess. I see it coming. I mean, we're, there's a generation out here that, that's not going to know anything about God at all. The next generation is coming up. They have been had it all separated from them. And they've been taught that they came from, from an animal. They've been taught how to mate. And they've been told how to mate. And there's nothing wrong with it. Everybody's supposed to do it. They don't know what purity is. I'm amazed. I was driving down the car, the, driving my car down the street uh, yesterday morning. And the lady was just ahead of me. She started to make a left turn. And the car coming the other direction had a turning signal on. But then at the last minute, it came right on straight after the car in front of me had already pulled in front of them because they didn't have a turning signal. I mean, they had a turning signal on. And here were two ladies in this front seat. And this lady threw the filthiest gesture at that other lady in the other car. And I thought, boy, this is incredible. They don't understand purity at all today. The Word of God says, Be ye holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. And God's saying... I want to have a holy nation, a peculiar people. When you and I relate to one another, if there's things, wrong thoughts that come into our mind, you know, you can let birds fly around your head, but you don't let them make a nest in your hair. To think something wrong is not wrong. It's not sin. It's when you begin to entertain it. And if you have wrong thoughts when you are around others, and I, I say this because in years past I have stood up here in the pulpit and I've watched pretty ladies walk through the door, and I've watched the eyes of some men as those ladies walk in, and I thought, Lord, forgive them for the thoughts that are going, evidently going through their mind right now. 
But you see, there's a difference between looking at a woman and lusting after a woman. If you and I, in our heart and in our mind, begin to think the thoughts of boy, oh boy, when we look at that gal, I'm not going to get into any more detail on that, but you begin to entertain wrong thoughts towards some other woman, that's adultery that you're committing in your own heart. And you have to ask God to forgive you right then and there. Lord, I don't want that in my life. And you say, well, boy, it just keeps coming back. That's right, because you have developed a pattern. You've developed a, a rut in your brain. And I guess I cannot get past this without ever bringing up that illustration. I've never forgotten that Peter Lord told one time about the cup with the Coke in it. And he had a guy come up and shake his hand and he said, shake it harder. And he shook it and he said, oh, oh, what happened? He said, there's spilled Coke all over the platform. He said, why'd you do that? He said, because I shook your arm. He said, no, that isn't why you did it. He said, wasn't? He said, no, it wasn't because you shook my arm. It's because that's what was in the cup. Now, if he said, if I'd have had seven up in there, you'd have spilled seven up. If I'd have had tea in there, you'd have spilled tea. He said, now get this. When a beautiful woman walks in front of you, she doesn't make you lust. She just shakes your cup and shows you what's in it. I thought, that's good. Is it tea or is it Coke or is it 7-Up? Whatever it is, when she walks by and she shakes your cup, whatever flies out, that, she didn't do it. She just shook your cup to show you what's there. If I say something to you about some person that you know and you have animosity toward that person, she shakes your cup and up comes anger. Up comes unforgiveness, you see. And the Lord uses that to show you what's there. You say, Lord, I acknowledge that's lust. I acknowledge that was a thought of adultery and fornication and that's sin and I ask you to forgive me and, and deliver me from that completely. I don't want it in my life. The relationship of believers is to be of purity toward one another. Both ways. There are some men who have so much lust in their heart that if a woman came around with a collar clear, up here and her, clear down to her ankles and her wrists, they would still lust after the woman. But the Bible does say that a woman should be very careful how she dresses. Men respond to sight. Women respond to touch and affection. And so that's why a man can walk out in a bathing suit unless a woman has opened herself to wrong thoughts and developed it. She'll think, okay. But men can respond differently. I say that because I came out of a background where I know how men respond. And I want to tell you something. I went through hell. I went through hell trying to get rid of those things and asking God to deliver me and set me free from it. An interesting thing, these past few years, I have somebody come up to me and say, couldn't you tell that that woman is trying to be interested in you? I said, I must not have my antennas up. Well, she was trying her best to get you to be interested in her. I said, I just don't have my antennas up. I think, boy, that's different from what I was before I was a Christian. But that's all only because of the Lord. I've had to fight with, uh, with that thing. I've had to have deliverance and, and just stand against it. I can remember with the thoughts that went through my mind when I was in Bible college. I used to have to get on my knees and, and sometimes get up and walk back and forth while I was praying out loud, singing out loud hymns about the blood to get these other thoughts out of my mind. The scripture says that there must be the renewing, renewing of your mind. Now, I don't know what your home life has been in the past, but God says renew your mind. Don't let it stay that way. I don't know what your affections have been in the past, but God says, get that out of your mind. If you've been involved in reading pornography, God says, that's filth, that's sin, get rid of it, don't do it. All that does is creates greater problems for you in the days ahead. If you're watching things that you ought not to be watching and seeing and hearing things you ought not to be seeing, say, Father, purify my heart, sanctify my heart, get that out of my life. It'll get you sooner or later if you don't. It'll defeat you. You can't win. The scripture says, flee fornication, flee every kind of sexual sin. Your thought life, whatever you're doing, 
Let it be with purity. So the men that are older than you, treat them as a father in the church. With respect. Now they may not have the education that you have. They may not have the finances that you have. But you know in God's sight that doesn't mean a thing. Because if they trust God with all their heart, they're just as precious in his sight as anyone else. I have to keep remembering, constantly reminding myself, that it's not what a man possesses that makes him something. It's what possesses him. If you and I are possessed by the Holy Spirit, the Lord's living in our life, then in God's sight, we're as precious to him as anyone else on earth. God's not running a popularity contest. He's looking for those that will be submitted and obedient to him. God says he wants our mind, our thought life to be purified so that the older women, we treat them as mothers. I know in this day and age, I even have to clarify that, a relationship between a young person and a, a mother, the child and the mother, should always be one of just constant affection and love, pure love between one another, and total respect. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I encourage all of you to say this to your young ladies. If you want to find out what man to marry when you're dating a man, watch him closely how he treats his mother. Because however he treats his mother, eventually that's how he will treat you. Don't side, don't try to put that aside. Just not too long ago, I married a couple. And I said to them beforehand, I don't think you should marry him. I really don't think you should marry him. I see real problems here. Have you watched how he treats his mother? Yeah, we've really talked about it. We've really talked about it. We've really talked about it. Well, I don't care if you've really talked about it. I don't see a change. Watch it. Years later, they came back and said, should have listened to you. Because it's exactly how he treats his mother is exactly how he's treating me. Never fail. So the Bible says, treat your mothers with honor and respect. Now, again, I say, when, when I was at Bible college, my mother came up to visit me one time. Didn't even profess to be a Christian, came to Bible college. I didn't even think about it. I opened doors for her, and I'd have her take my arm, would walk, and, and I'd pull a chair out and put her and let her sit in the chair. And, and Beverly told me later, she's I was just amazed when I watched how you treated your mother. My mother had a third grade education. She went deaf, totally deaf, when she was when she was in the third grade, and then didn't get her hearing back until she was almost seventeen or eighteen. Got a little bit of her hearing back, but my mother and I had a very close relationship. I could sit down and talk with her and tell her things an awful lot more than I could with my father. But I, for some reason, I just always had a close relationship with my mother. Didn't even think about it. But I'll tell you, if you have a young fellow that's going around saying, oh, shut up, Mom. I don't listen to her. Don't pay attention. That's exactly how he's going to treat you. And I would make sure that my wife could be, had a good relationship with her father, too. Because if she has respect for her father, she'll have respect for authority. She knows how to submit spiritual authority. But the scripture says here, this is good for us now, that we're to treat the elderly mothers as mothers, elderly women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. All purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. But if any widow have children or nephews, actually, by the way, originally that was, they called some grandchildren nephews way back in the early times, I'm told, according to some of the commentators. But it actually meant grandchildren. If they have children or grandchildren, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents. For that's good and acceptable before God. Now, I want to tell you something. This is one verse that really tears some Christians up today. And that is, we're in a throwaway society. We're trying to get over it now and recycle. Many 
young people today say, I don't want anything to do with my, look, I don't want the responsibility of my mom or my dad, for pity's sakes. I mean, they're old and they're in the way, let's move them out. There's nursing homes, there's all these other things. Well, in some cases, that may be the best if they can't be cared for at home. But the Word of God here says, if she has children or grandchildren, let them learn first. Learn. How do you learn? By experience. I remember reading of a, uh, this is a Jewish story they tell about the young man who had his father was very elderly and getting sickly, but the daughter-in-law did not want the father to have to stay in that home, and she was just chafing under the thing, and she said finally, you've got to get rid of him or I'm leaving. I can't stand to have somebody else in our home right now. I mean, after all, he's getting old. It's time for him to be taken care of someplace else. Take him down to the old folks' home. And the husband resisted as long as he could, and finally he just went and said, Dad, look, in order to keep my home together, I'm just going to have to take you down. He said, I don't want to go to the, I'm only going to be around a few more months, maybe a couple more years. No, don't take me out of here. Just let me stay with you until I'm, I pass away. He said, no, Dad, I can't. I've got to keep my own home together. And he grabs his dad, and he starts dragging him down the street. And his dad kept resisting and resisting and resisting. He finally got down the road a little ways, and he stopped one place. He says, no, I'm not going to go another step further with you. This is all the further I dragged my father, and I stopped. You see, chickens came home to roost. He'd want to get rid of his dad, too, one day. The Bible says the thing we need to learn is that we have a responsibility. The requite means to repay. We tend to forget that God says that we should honor our fathers and our mothers. That means we should care for them. I didn't say it. God's Word says it there. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that's good and acceptable before God. Uh, I just want to bring out one other thing here, too. There's a lot of people today that just they get mad if the church doesn't immediately step into a situation. The church is not supposed to step into a family situation. God says it's the children's responsibility. Why should I fix the fix that God's fixed to fix them with? That's their responsibility first. Now, if they fell out completely and they were in, she was totally destitute and had no way around, then the church is supposed to step in and help whatever way they can. Trouble is, the church has turned almost everything over to our government today, and the government's running everything, then they get mad because the government wants to control us. If the church kept doing what they're supposed to do, the government would never have gotten control of so many things. So many people say that the state's trying to run our children now. Well... We ran to the state and told them to make a, to marry us and then to divorce us. They're in charge of the marriage. So why shouldn't they have charge of what the offspring are? If we're going to give them the authority to marry us and to divorce us, shouldn't they have the responsibility of taking care of what the offspring was of the mess they made? But if we believe God caused us to become one flesh, that we're one flesh for life, and anything that comes from that is a gift from God, and that we have to give it back to the Lord and raise it for the fear and admin, I mean, for the, uh, service of the Lord in fear and admonition of the Lord. That takes on a completely different light. But the church has abdicated that to the state. Here, state, you take care of it. Now, she that is a widow indeed and desolate, trusteth in God and continueth in supplication and prayers night and day. She that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Now, there are evidently some widows that when they, their husbands died, they had a big party. They started partying it up. Paul says, those kind, we don't have a responsibility to at all. Then he goes down here and talks about verse 8. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Now you see, a lot of times parents say that, well, that means I've got to take care of my children. Well, your parents are part of your house too. 
the Word of God says that the fathers and mothers are responsible for their children and their grandchildren. Well, that's retroactive. If you're responsible for them, they should be responsible for you too. For those of your own house, you're to take care of those in your own household. How many of you know that my mother-in-law is not really of my household? I married into that family. That's the only mother-in-law I've got left, only mother of any type I've got left. We've just said, Mama, it doesn't make any difference. You just let us know. Whatever the need is, we'll, we'll help you take care of it. Don't ever worry about that. This is good and acceptable to God. God wants us to have that kind of relationship. Now, there's a lot of arguments by the commentators as to what the widow taken into the number is. There are many that would like to use that and say that was for the deaconesses, that they would take some kind of an office in the church, but there's no evidence that that's what they were talking about here. We don't really know what the number is, but unless these were some that were officially put on the welfare rolls of the church. Back in that day, you remember in the book of Acts when the, the Greeks were complaining that the Jewish widows were getting more uh, care than the, than the Greek, Greek ones were? I mean, than the Jewish ones were? The Greeks were getting less than the Jews. The Jews were getting more, uh, Jewish widows were getting more care than the Greeks. And the, and the apostles had them raise up seven deacons and had them take care of that in the church. This is probably referring to the same thing. It says, let not a widow be taken into number under 60 years of age having been the wife of one man. Now, I'm assuming they're saying one living husband, but it says, having been the husband of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers. It's not just, you don't take any widow off the street that's over 60. You've got to know them if there's going to be a responsibility for the church to take care of them. And you've got to know that they have been faithful to God down through the years so that the church now, because of their faithfulness, takes responsibility to take care of them. There's some people nowadays that will walk through the church door and if you don't give them an offering, they go out and just scream and holler about the church not caring and the church is, you know, just self-centered and stingy and all this stuff. Professionals, they've actually had professional people that pulled into a town will go from church to church to church getting offerings from all the churches, all the money they possibly can. They're, they're getting ready to go down to Miami or they got lost down here and they got to get back to New York City or something and they collect hundreds of dollars in a day going from church to church. He says, well reported of her good works if she had brought up children, if she had lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, and if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Then you can bring them into that numbered group. They have to be over 60 years of age. Real requirements here. I sat down on my notes. I didn't want to bring it with me, but 14 different things he required for those widows that were acceptable as far as being put on that, on that list. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith, and with all they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, not only idle, but tattlers and also busy, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. That, that gives you Paul's idea of what he, that what he was disturbed about with some Christians, ladies, that usually when our hands are not busy, it's very easy to go around and start saying things and sharing things and carrying things around. And he said they, they create real problems. I will therefore that the younger women marry and bear children and guide the house. Amazing. He didn't put any other things in there. Basically, he's saying here, this is the responsibility of younger women, marry. What are you going to do if they don't have anybody to marry? Well, the Word of God talks about being single too. It says there's something worse than being single, that being married. Paul says, better be like me. Better that you never touch a woman. 
better that you never touch a man. Why? Because he said if you're married, you're constantly trying to please your partner and do whatever you can to please your partner, help take care of your partner, and help me. But if you're not married, you can totally give yourself to pleasing the Lord. Uh, he's not saying, so you husbands and wives, throw your partners over so you can go give yourselves to the Lord. No, that isn't what he's saying at all. He's just simply saying that if you don't marry, you can actually be more committed to the Lord than otherwise. I'll tell you the honest truth. I have been able to spend a lot more time in reading and praying and a lot of these other things than I could when Beverly was still living. Why? Because I used to spend a lot of time with her, fellowshipping and doing things in the house together and so forth. Uh, I know what he's talking about now as far as better. I, I miss not being married. I really miss that. But I know what Paul's talking about here. You can have more time to do what you want to do. If I can just get this mess straightened up in my back and get, be able to get up and get going and do the things I want to do, it'll be a total different thing. Won't younger women marry, bear children? He didn't say two or one, did he? Guide the house. Give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let them relieve them. Let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. First John 2, 3-5, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith, I know him, that I abideth in him, ought himself even to walk, even himself also to walk, so to walk, even as he walked. I'll get it right here yet. I didn't say that. John said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We don't have any choice in the matter. I've said before, and I want to emphasize this again to any of you that are married or are thinking of marriage. When you make your vows during the marriage ceremony, I will love, honor, cherish, all these different words that you use in there. That's a vow to God. And you don't even have to divorce your partner in order to break that vow and have God begin to destroy the work of your hands. You just need to quit honoring, quit cherishing, quit holding in high regard and high respect your partner. Be coarse with them, say hurtful things to them, get mad at them and, and make them feel like a penny waiting for change, shut them off and not talk to them. And God says the minute we do that as husbands, first of all, our prayers are cut off. Your, your wire's been cut. The phone line's dead. You might as well quit jabbering. Why? He says you're to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. We're talking about what's good and acceptable in the sight of God. Ephesians 5, beginning with the 22nd verse. Well, we can take verse 21, throw it in there. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submitting yourselves one to another. Husbands, submit yourselves to your wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. What does that mean? It means you give preference to them. Not have to be Mr. Big Shot. Not have to be right all the time. Not to be the winner all the time. Submitting means I acknowledge that you are a person. I acknowledge the qualities of your life. I acknowledge that you have a voice also because we are one. God can speak through both of us, not just one of us. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
The Bible doesn't say, if they are thus and such, submit yourself to your own husband. Now again, balance comes in. Nowhere does the word of God say you are to obey your husband and do something contrary to the scripture. How are you going to be submitted to the Lord if you're going to violate all the principles of God's word to begin with? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Now all I have to do is tell you that he compares it to Jesus Christ. He's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now if you want to get into semantics on that thing, you just sit down and figure out who Jesus Christ is. He's the head and the church is supposed to be the body. And if the body would ever obey Christ as it ought to, we would have a massive revival all over this earth. And if the wives would submit to their husbands and the husbands would treat their wives properly, the homes would just blossom. The divorces would stop tomorrow. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in... Wives, be submitted to your own husbands in everything. Husbands... Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. You see, because it says that it's the same as Christ sanctifying the church. When you love your wife as Christ loved the church, there will be a cleansing, there will be a growth, there will be a maturity, there will be a fellowship there that can't even be described like, like Christ wants to have with his church. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holding without blemish. See, and it talks about you to treat your wife like Christ loved the church. They might present it to himself a, a glorious, what? A glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. You treat your wife like that, and I'll tell you something, she'll have a glow that'll make the rest of the women be envious of the church. You treat her like she is special, she's choice, she's precious, there's no one else on earth like her. She'll have a glow about her. I mean, you'll just, you'll just see it all over. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. So ought men to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. And you guys know if you get a cut or you get a bruise or something, oh, goodness, i got to take care of this thing. You're just as concerned about your wife's needs. Same degree. As if, if you got your finger half cut off, well, you'd, wow, I don't dare lose that finger on this gorgeous hand of mine. But if something happens to your wife, you should be every bit as, if not more, concerned about that situation. But we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Someone says you leave and you cleave. You'll never be able to love your wife as you ought to love your wife if you don't leave your parents. You'll never be able to love your husband as you ought to love your parents. Uh, love your husband if you don't leave your parents. Your husband and your wife first. First. You still love your parents. You ask them for advice. But then the two of you go to prayer and you decide what God wants you to do. Very important. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, to see that the wife reverence her husband. You know, if we want, if we want God's blessings, we've got to inculcate into our lives those things that God says are good for us. We've got to get rid of the things that God says are bad for us. 
He says, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And I'll tell you, if you walk in the flesh, you'll not fulfill the desires of the Spirit. The two are contrary to the one to the other. They won't put up with each other. They're just fighting all the time. We've got to decide which one's going to win. You say, which one is going to win? Whichever one you feed. If you feed wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong principles in your home, it'll come back to you. You're sowing seeds, and they'll come back, and they'll be bitter seeds. You won't like the harvest at all. I always said, if you don't like the fruit of sin, stay out of the orchard. Get out of that orchard. Get into one where you're planting God's seeds in your home. Godly principles in your home. It'll come back to any old to Let's, let's take some other portions of Scripture. Last week we took 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter, and it talked about relationship, interpersonal relationships, and it talked about working or dealing with the widows in the church, how important it was to care for the widows in the church. It said, don't rebuke the older men, treat them as a father, and the younger men as brethren. Uh, we should act like we are blood relatives, closer than, uh, you know, in many cases, my relationships with Believers are much closer than my blood relationship with my family. And this is the way the scripture says we're supposed to be. And the older women in the church should be treated as mothers and the youngers as sisters with all purity. And then it says honor widows that are widows indeed. And the word tomao means to have respect for them, support them, revere them, reward them, whatever you can to help them and encourage them. That's the thing we were talking about last week where we look at each other with respect. Now, by the way, let me just interject here. Respect, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything someone does in order to respect them. I have had to tell our young people time and time again, they say, well, you don't know what my mother and dad are like. And I'll say, That's, that has nothing to do with it whatsoever, regardless of their conduct. The scripture says you are to honor them because of their position. It doesn't say if they're a good mom, a good dad, a bad mom, a bad dad. It says because they are your father and your mother, you are to hold them in very high esteem and total respect at all times. But you don't know how bad my dad is. You don't know how mean he can be. You don't know how unreasonable he can be. It doesn't say that in the scripture. Let me tell you something. Over and over again, I try to emphasize this to you. God doesn't tell you based upon certain circumstances, do thus and such. He says, these are your requirements for you to be obedient to me. You be obedient, I'll honor you. And I'll deal with those who do not honor me in their position. Can you imagine what it would be like if people interpreted that scripture verse to say, honor your father and mother whenever you think they deserve it? Children, obey your parents whenever you feel like it. God has established these levels, as I've talked about so many times, of authority. And if one level doesn't operate properly, it doesn't mean that the other levels all get to say, well, if they don't do it right, I'm not going to do it right. And there's total disharmony then. If each person in their position, how you deal with the younger women, the older women, the younger men, the older men in the church, the widows in the church, how you relate to them, has nothing to do with their conduct. It has to do with your responsibility before God. Remember when Jesus talked about loving your neighbor and the attorney says, well, who's my neighbor? That's the nature of the, that's the human nature. That's the human heart. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, that guy lives four blocks away, but he's not my neighbor. Jesus said, wait a minute, let me just stop you right now and tell you, you be the neighbor. That's different, isn't it? You might be 500 miles away, but if you see somebody in trouble, you be the neighbor. God does not excuse us. He says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. 
So when God tells us there are to be interpersonal relationships built upon biblical principles and standards, it doesn't make any difference how mom or dad treats you or how the children act toward you. You are to hold your position in obedience to God and let the Lord take care of the rest of it. When your spiritual authority is not functioning as they ought to function, what is your request? What's the next step for you? Let's say the husband is not doing what he ought to be doing in the family. And you say, how can I submit to this situation? What alternative do you have? Submit to God. How about crying out to the Lord? You see, you can go to directly to the Lord and say, Lord, I will obey your word. I will do everything you tell me to do. In the meantime, I pray that you will help me through my obedience to be an influence on this, this one who is in my position of my authority. It isn't, well, if he's not going to be halfway decent, I'm not going to be halfway decent. If he doesn't act right, I'm not going to act right. I'll teach him. I'll learn him something, you know. No, no, no. No, you do what God shows you to do. Now, again, see, whenever I get into the subject, my mind just throws up flags every time I say something. I'm not talking about compromising biblical principles. If someone who is in authority, if, you're, if a father tells a child to do something that's not scriptural, they must appeal to that authority and say, I cannot do that based upon the word of God, but I, could I do this? Can I do it this way or that way? I want to please you, but I can't do it the way you're asking me to do it. Appeal. Then if they say, no, you'll do it my way, then you may have to take a stand and say, I can't do that before the Lord. My dad, after I became a Christian, wanted me to go into the bar with him and sit down while he was drinking beer with his buddies and talk with him. I said, Dad, I'll come and pick you up. I'll take you to the bar and let you out. But I really don't want to get into that environment anymore. I was in there too much before I became a Christian. I don't want to get into that environment anymore. The scripture says to abstain from the very appearance of evil. And so the biblical principle is for me not to get involved in that type of an environment. He got very upset with me. I said, Dad, please understand that I love you and I want to do what you asked me to do. If you want to go to a restaurant down the street and go in and sit down with your buddies and we'll sit and talk and you can drink coffee, whatever, I'm glad to do that. And it isn't that I don't love you, but I can't do that before God. So he knew it wasn't a case of me rejecting him or me trying to be disobedient to him. I told him I had a, a principle that I had to operate by. Now, the same thing is true with children to parents, wife to husband, and husband to the Lord. The only trouble is, there's not much appeal for husbands to the Lord. This that you are to obey the Lord, that you are to submit to the Lord, and you are to put him first in your life. And consequently, the evidence of that will be in the fact that you love your wife as yourself. And she's just like you treat your own body, you treat your wife with love and kindness and gentleness. Interpersonal relationships that I thought were just everybody knew and understood, today people don't understand these things. 